Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Hey, Brian. Hi, Katie. Well, you know, we have actually a very serious show today because... While we've talked about the dizzying pace of news, it's sometimes hard to process the daily barrage of stories that have been filling up our timelines and news feeds. And that's what we wanted to do today. We wanted to step back and give some perspective to a particularly horrific event that happened recently. And the topic is gun violence. The event is the shooting at Parkland in Florida. And I'm just heartbroken, as I know you are, every time you hear about another mass shooting. That's right. It's like a broken record, sadly, and it's happening far too frequently. I know that we're all devastated for the families in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School were killed in February. Many others were injured, and of course, the entire school and community completely traumatized when a 19-year-old former student at the school, returned with an AR-15 and opened fire. I know this time is different, has become kind of a cliche, but this time really does feel different, um, namely because of how the students at the school have responded. They've been remarkable. I talked to Mark Barden, who is a father from Sandy Hook, who lost his adorable son, Daniel, in that massacre. And we were trying to understand why this felt different. And I think it's because, as you mentioned, Brian, these high school students, they are smart, they're learning the issue, and they're making their voices be heard. So it's almost this built-in advocacy group that has sprung up from this horrific tragedy. You're exactly right. I mean, they're pressuring politicians on social media. They organized a national school walkout day and also, of course, a march in Washington that's coming up on Saturday, March 24th 
two days after this episode drops. And that brings us to our first guest, Ali Sheehy. She is a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, a really sweet, nice, kind of typical high school senior, thinking about the things that high school seniors think about, their future, how to get through exams, graduation, prom, all these rites of passage when this happens. But as you listen to her, I think you're going to realize how extraordinary she actually is. She was so gracious and open about her experience. It was very moving to speak with her. And today, by the way, is a two-part episode. Our second guest is Shannon Watts, the founder of Moms Demand Action, which is a group pushing for reform of our gun laws. She's another remarkable woman. She started Moms Demand Action as a stay-at-home mom with five kids, No political experience. She had some experience in corporate communications. But like so many Americans, when she heard about this shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, she said, enough, I have got to do something. So she decided to take action and decided to start this organization that has grown tremendously and accomplished so much in just five years. Moms Demand Action now has 50 chapters, over 100,000 active volunteers working to pass what they call common-sense gun reforms on the state and federal level. You'll be hearing from Shannon a bit later in the show, but first, our conversation with an extraordinary student from Parkland, Florida, Ali Sheehy. Hey, Ali, it's Katie Couric. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. And this is Brian Goldsmith. Hey, Allie. It's nice to meet you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Allie, gosh, um, it's hard to really figure out where to begin. You're 18 years old. You're a senior in high school at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I guess I'm going to ask the question that reporters are told not to ask, but somehow I feel is appropriate given the situation. How are you doing? Um, I think right now all of us are kind of doing the best that we can. It's getting used to our new normal that we have at our school and our community right now. And how would you describe that new normal? I don't really think that there's a way to describe it. There's just a wave of emotions that kind of affects everybody differently at this point. And We're just kind of trying to all get through it together because you don't know what the person next to you is thinking or going through or how this affected them. It's just kind of a a sensitive situation that we're all in right now. I'm sure, you know, everyone deals with trauma differently. And is it a fairly unified situation at the high school or have you seen evidence of people kind of at each other because of this and dealing with emotion, you know, these very heavy emotions at the same time? I mean, for the most part right now at our school, we're all very unified. We're all one family. But even in a family, you have fights between people. And right now, most of the conflict is between the political aspects of this kind of argument that we're having with the left and the right and liberals and conservatives at our school having different viewpoints and different ways that they want to take this. And it's just something that's hard to see because this is not the time to argue between ourselves. It's something, it's a time that we all need to be together. And it's it's just, 
angers me to see people arguing over something that we don't need to argue about. So, Allie, before we talk about that terrible day and before we talk more about the aftermath, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your life before the shooting, about your senior year? I know you described yourself as a happy-go-lucky person before this. What were your Mm -hmm. interests and activities, and what's Parkland, Florida like? Um. Before this, I was focused on my senior year, getting AP tests and finishing that out. And the week before that, I was worried about my AP stat quiz that I had on Friday that I didn't understand anything that I was doing. So I was kind of studying really hard for that. And um, prom is coming up. So my friends and I we're kind of worried about that and which dress we're going on and what friends are coming with us and what bus we're going on. and Sort I, of normal high school things, yeah, right? Yeah, and I also, that day, that morning, um, I asked my best friend if she wanted to be my roommate <laughs> in college. Where is Where are you going to school, Allie? I'm going to UCF in the summer. And, and what's Parkland, Florida like? I mean, I know it's about halfway between Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale, and it's a fairly small, tight-knit community. Well, we kind of describe it as the Parkland bubble because it's really just a tight-knit community of family, and it's very family-oriented. It's a city that families with small children move to specifically because of the atmosphere that we have. The population is kind of small and we have A plus schools and it's just something that people come to feel safe at. It's a safe city. So you expressed to our producers you were willing to talk about that day and we don't want to re-traumatize you, Allie. So you talk about whatever you're comfortable talking about. But as you mentioned, you were thinking about the prom, you were talking to your best friend about college, you were worried about an AP test, and then suddenly those concerns, which are legitimate for a high school senior, for any student across the country, but they became obviously something that had no weight in your life. Tell us about where you were and what you witnessed and what that day was like for you personally. Um, my morning started out normally. I got up late because I didn't want to get out of bed because I'm not a morning person. Um, but I got to school. I hung out with my friends in the parking lot and I asked my best friend to be my roommate. I made a little sign and I said, will you be my Valentine? But crossed out Valentine and wrote roommate. And she said yes. And we had a big hug. Um, and then we all separated, and we didn't think any of it, thing of it, and we just all said a quick bye, see you later. And we went to our first period, and the morning announcements came on, and um, our assistant principal came on for the, his usual normal um, morning announcements, and he started talking about, like, you know, the protocols and our zones for fire drills, and we're like, oh, there must be a fire drill coming up later. And sure enough, second period— the fire alarm one goes off. We all walk out of the building calmly, stand in rows, go back in 10 minutes later. Class continues. Fourth period comes around, and my teacher, we kind of got halfway through class, and we were in a project because we just finished reading Macbeth, and we were doing a project on that. And she had to leave early because she had to drop her kid off at the doctor. 
So she had to drop us off in the auditorium because there weren't enough subs that day to cover. Uh, So we had a teacher from the freshman building come over with his class. And then we were sitting and finishing up our project and we were kind of goofing around. And then the fire alarm went off again. And we were kind of confused because we didn't know why this would happen so close to the end of the day. So we got up, we walked outside, and we heard some pops. We didn't think anything of it, but then we saw kids running and screaming. And so we were like, oh, this must be like a real fire. We should start walking faster. Um, And we picked up the pace, but then we were, our auditorium is right next to the administration, like the office. And administrators were telling us to turn back and go back inside. So we ran back inside and we're like, this is weird. Why are we doing this? And for the first 10 minutes, we thought that this was a drill, like this was a code red drill. But the more and more we thought about it, the more and more we realized, why would they make a code red drill so close to the end of school? Why would they not tell the teachers? And why would so many sirens be coming from outside? And I immediately started texting all my friends and trying to calm down the people around me because kids that I've gone to school with for my entire life, basically, were breaking down crying. We all thought we didn't know if we were going to make it out. And that's a very scary thing to think about. It's not something I ever want anybody else to text to their parents because I know I texted my mom And I said, I don't know if this is real, but I want to let you know I love you. And she responded back saying, what? And 10 minutes passed, and I said, Mom, it's real. So you you went back into the school after you had left the school? We didn't actually leave, like, the school grounds. We were just outside of the auditorium. Right. So we didn't— It's one of those things that you drill for and teachers are told to put you back into the building when this happens. Where was your class before your teacher left early? I'm just curious. Was your class in the area? No. I actually moved closer to where it was happening. If she did not leave early, we would have been in the 900 building, which is the furthest one away from where it happened. And we would have been in the backfield and already evacuated to Walmart when it happened. When you when did you realize, Allie, what had happened inside that school? It was when I started getting messages from my friends that were in that building saying, I'm I love you and it's real, it's happening. Like two kids in my class were just shot and there's blood everywhere. So kids were texting you as it was actually going mm-hmm. on. Did mm-hmm. did you know many of the students who lost their lives that day? Um, I knew a few. Um, three of them were my grade. Um, one of them, Carmen, was in m- some of my classes. And uh, one of the younger ones, one of the freshmen that passed away, um, is on my little sister's soccer team. And the two coaches saw them every morning. Just hard to believe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is it hard to talk about this for you, Allie? Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to listen. I can only imagine having to tell the story. 
I'm hesitant even to ask this, but did you know the shooter at all? I did. He was in my grade before he got expelled. What can you tell us about him? Um... He was just, um, the best way I can describe him was he was a weird person that went up to anybody and everybody and talked to them like he knew them already. And me as a shy person that doesn't really like talking to people, it was kind of awkward and I'd always try to shuffle away whenever he came up to me. He was very persistent and would talk about the most randomest things and... It, it, he was a kid that went to our middle school. It's He had problems all before. He had to bring a plastic bag to school because he couldn't bring his backpack anymore so that they could see what he brought to school because he was that much of a threat. Are you surprised that more wasn't done or disturbed that more wasn't done given the warning signs that seemed, in retrospect, to have been everywhere. I'm disturbed by it, definitely, because this is something that should never have happened. But it's also something that I know my school did the most that they could have, given the laws and the rules that they're given as teachers. It There was nothing that the school could have done. It was left to our government and our local police officers, but even they were limited. And it's just something that never should have happened. We'll be taking a quick break and we'll be back with Parkland student Ali Sheehy right after this. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 
And now back with Ali Sheehy. In the aftermath of this tragedy, I know your focus is on school safety, whereas I know many of your classmates are focused on uh, changing gun laws. So Mm -hmm. how did you decide to focus on this aspect of the issue? And I'm curious about if that's created any tension among your classmates. I don't think it's tension among our classmates. For me personally, I'm not only talking about school safety. I believe in stronger and stricter gun laws. It's just that we already have a forefront for the gun laws people. Those are my friends. Those people that are speaking out are students from my school. I've known them forever. They're talking about it. They have a strong argument with them already. But we're kind of working in conjunction with them to get this full spectrum of problems that need to be fixed. So when you say that you're focused on school safety, what does that actually mean? Well, I've looked into it. And for fire drills, Broward schools, I don't know if it's every county yet. I haven't done enough research. But we're required to have a fire drill once every month. That means that we have 10 fire drills every single school year since we've been in kindergarten. That has been something that has been drilled into our heads, that it's an automatic response to get up and walk out of the classroom when that bell goes off. For code red drills, we don't practice them that often. It's not an automatic response to get up and go to the safest corner of the room. It's something that in a moment that we haven't practiced as much as fire drills that people freeze and they don't know what to do and they panic. And I've talked to people that were in the building. I know people that were in some of the rooms and some of the people in those rooms that actually passed away was because they went for the window first instead of going towards the corner, or people started going towards the corner, but they weren't completely out of sight from the window and the door. So they were out in the open and they got hit. And it's something that needs to become a second nature that a fire drill is because it's unacceptable. It's even disturbing that we have to practice these kinds of things, but it's something that is our new reality. This is something that we've grown up with our entire lives. Like when Columbine happened, I was not even born. So that was something that the schools implemented as I went to school. I've grown up with this, and it's something that definitely needs to be fixed on multiple levels, but right now we should be fixing the problems that we have. It's just a big cluster (laughs) of wrong. Right. And what what do you make of President Trump's recommendation that more teachers should be armed? How do you feel about that, Allie? I, that is the worst idea I have ever heard in my life. I absolutely hate that idea. Why? It's, once you're in that situation, you understand, but a SWAT team coming into your room, they have their guns drawn, they have, they ask and are screaming at you to have their hands raised where they can see them. And if my teacher had a gun, how are they supposed to tell that that person is the bad guy or the good guy? And another thing that I find very disturbing is how they're talking about doing it with having the gun locked away. And if it's locked away, you need to have the ammo separate from it. And if it's locked away, this happened in six minutes. 
Six minutes is a very short amount of time. Six minutes is not enough time to protect your students and make sure they're safe. Then go to your gun safe, get out your stuff, and then ask my teacher that has volunteered their time to teach me, to make me into a doctor, into a lawyer, into a politician, into a baker, into anything that I'm going to do in my future, and then ask them to risk their lives, for, that's not something they signed up for. There was legislation just signed in Florida that does a variety of things. It enacts a three-day waiting period to buy a gun. It bans so-called bump stocks. It raises the minimum age, with some exceptions, to 21. It also does make it easier to train and arm school employees. Um, what's your reaction to this legislation? Did you support it? It's it's a baby step in the right direction. And it, they're not listening to what we're actually asking for. They're kind of just pacifying what we're asking for in hopes that we're going to stop. And I can tell you right now we're not going to stop because this has happened way too many times. And I don't want my school to be another statistic in the school shooting list. What I do don't you, want that to happen. Allie, what are you actually asking for? We want a ban on the assault weapons because there had there's no way— that that should have happened. There's no way that a 19-year-old that has a background like that should have gotten a weapon like that. There's so many levels of what we want for stricter background checks and mental health screenings. They're offering more for arming teachers than they are for regular citizens on the streets. And that's completely ridiculous to me. How do you feel about President Trump's reaction to this? Did you appreciate that he invited students to the White House? And do you think there's any hope that he will see things your way? For the president inviting people to the White House to talk to him, I felt that was a big slap in the face because that weekend and a couple days before that, he was here. He was where we all were. He was here to the point where students and teachers could talk to him. But instead, he selected a few and brought them to him. And in an environment that only he could control. And I didn't like that because he only selected a few voices of what actually happened. You wrote a poem, Allie, called Dear Mr. President. Um, what inspired you to write that? Um... It was the morning when he was in or near Parkland, and he was not answering our calls to actually speak with him and have a conversation with him. It was also the morning that he wrote that the FBI failed us because they were busy with the Russian collusion. And that made me even more angry because he was sitting in his hotel room watching TV while all of us were going to vigils and memorials and burying our friends. That actually is so upsetting. That makes me cry thinking about you all and this cognitive dissonance between what you all were experiencing and what the president was tweeting. But can you read a little of the poem you wrote? Why don't you read, actually, the whole thing? Because it's short enough that you can read the whole thing, and it's so good. So go ahead. My poem is called Dear Mr. President. My friends have died. They are gone from our lives. Yet you sit there twiddling your thumbs. My friends have died. The life gone from their eyes. Yet you sit there talking anything but guns. 
my friends have died, and we've cried and cried, yet you sit there blaming the mentally ill. My friends have died, our voices pushed aside, yet you sit there, you sit there still. My friends have died, and our tears aren't dried, yet you sit there watching us plead. My friends have died, it's an issue nationwide, you sit there still, so how about you lead? As a community forever unified, I ask you, sir, how did this happen to us? I invite you to learn, to hear the story from inside, because if not now, when will the right time be to discuss? That really uh, spread, I think, on social media, your poem. What kind of reaction did you get to your poem? I got a lot of positive. There was a lot of people supporting and asking tagging along with why hasn't anything been done so far. I also got a lot of negative feedback for people saying I was disrespectful to the president and that I was blaming him for everything that happened, which I I didn't intend to do, I, nor do I want to. I'm just asking him why he didn't do anything. Allie, I understand that you're an editor on your school yearbook, and this is the first high school that has to document an event like this in its yearbook. So how are you covering this tragedy? It's something that we really have to be careful about. But as a group, it's kind of our own little family now because we talk about it a lot. And it's kind of a therapy, therapeutic kind of thing. Um, covering it is a little hard because you have to relive it every single time that you open that spread and look at it and read the story and look at the pictures. But something that we've all agreed on is that we're going to honor the way that they lived, not the way that they died. And I think it's very important that we document it because this is something that all of us are going to be able to keep for years. I know you're going to, you have plans to go to the march in Washington with your friends. What do you hope people will take away from this show of unity and the fact that so many people in cities all across the country will be marching and protesting on March 24th? What do you hope the message will be and where do you go from here? I hope that it shows that we're not going to take this lying down anymore that this is something that has brought us all together and we're now questioning our government as to why they've let it go on. And I hope this shows how we're not going to take it, that we're going to change it, and we're not going to shut up and be quiet while you guys take money from lobbyists and people that are trying to just control what goes on in the country, the 1% that's going to try to control it. Because that's that's unacceptable. I had I went to a lunch with a couple of other student activists from Parkland, and they said that one of their biggest priorities is to register kids to vote and register people mm -hmm. to vote and to get them to be motivated as NRA members can be and as gun rights advocates can be single-issue voters. They want to turn a lot of other people on the other side into single-issue voters. Is that the strategy that you'd like to pursue as well? I definitely think that's so important because 
right now, I know our generation and the millennials before us haven't really shown out to vote most of the time. Our age group has been sort of not politically active. And as my AP Gov teacher has told us time and time again, if you don't participate, you don't get to complain. And I think that's very strong because we are participating now. We are using our voices and we have the power to change it if we don't like it. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Or as Gandhi said, be the change that you wish to see in the world. Yeah, that's painted on our wall in our school. Is anyone helping you guys organize uh, and and figure out your strategy? Is anyone helping to pay your expenses, for example, to go to the March on Washington? We've gotten a lot of support from all over, but most of this has been student driven and we're going to we want to keep it student driven because it's our voices that matter. I think that's actually very interesting. The girls I met also said they don't want this to turn into a corporate event. They don't want branding from companies. They want to keep it as pure as possible. Mm -hmm. We want to keep our emotions because that's what's gotten us this far. It's the students voicing their emotions, their feelings, our experiences. This is something that we've lived through. This is not something everybody understands. And that's also something that we want to make sure that nobody ever has to live through this again. I don't think anybody should be happy that they had a second chance at life after a gunman came to their school. You know, as Brian mentioned, you describe yourself as a happy-go-lucky person. And I'm just curious, as we close here, Allie, how this has changed you as a person. Would you still describe yourself that way? Or has something changed deep inside of you and even your outlook on life and even perhaps what you want to do um, as as you get older and go out in the world? It hasn't really changed what I want to do. I've been set on becoming a doctor since I was 10. Um, and I don't think that's something that I can be swayed from. But it's definitely changed my point of view on who will listen. Because I before, when everything else happened, I'd see it on the news. I'd send my thoughts and prayers. And I'd, be, I'd say to myself, I can't do anything. I'm a kid. I can't change adults' minds. They won't listen to us. I'm, they're still not listening. Not all of them are listening to us, but we're trying our best. A lot, a lot of us are. <laughs> yeah. Um, a few are still a little bit stubborn on how kids can know so much information. But something I want to say about that is that we are students, and we know that when you don't study, you fail your test. This is our test now. This fight for change is our test now. And Trust me when I say this, we've been up until 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning researching our laws, looking up our legislators, seeing how much money is donated, where the money is going and coming from, because we want to make sure that we know what we're talking about, because we want to make sure that we have the answers to the questions that people ask us, because that's the most important thing. I know your mom's with you in the studio, and we really wanted to have this conversation be the three of us, but I imagine she must be incredibly proud of you and the fact that you are stepping into this arena, which isn't easy because I'm sure all those negative tweets and all those that negativity on social media is something you really never get used to, but I imagine your parents have been 
incredibly supportive and are incredibly proud. They're the most supportive people ever. (laughs) Well, I think you're going to go on and do great things. I think you're going to be a wonderful doctor, but also just a wonderful citizen because you're willing to get out there and use your voice and collaborate and unite with people who want to see change in the world. And I just wish you all the best and so much luck, not only in this fight, but in your life. And uh, and we, both Brian and I, and everyone involved in this podcast, really appreciate you talking to the, us about this today. I know it's not easy, but, you know, it's incredibly moving to hear you talk about what happened and where you go from here. So thank you, Allie. Thank you for having me. Wow, that was a very intense conversation. And for me, a very, I don't know, Brian, I know you said you thought I was moved. I was very moved. And I don't know if you can see behind my glasses, but I was actually tearing up with both sadness for Allie and her classmates and the community, but also tearing up because I was so inspired by the work she's doing and how she has transformed into this incredible activist. Yeah, she's a... And with such humility, too. You know, I was also struck by her when she said, we're students, and we know that you have to study or you fail the test, and this is our test. I don't know. That was so profound to me. It was, and I feel terrible that she's having to go through this, that she can't just focus on being a kid in her senior year of high school and thinking about her college roommate, but she's trying to turn this tragedy into a teaching moment for the country, and she is— Nothing, if not incredibly inspiring. A great example, you know, but I think it's also a few days after this happened, my daughter, who's in college, said, I'm so scared, Mom, there's going to be a shooting here. So you can imagine kind of the anxiety level for kids everywhere when something like this happens. And that's why I think something's got to be done. So speaking of that, um, next up is our conversation with Shannon Watts, the founder of Moms Demand Action. And we're going to talk about the policy response to shootings like Parkland, what should happen, not just in Washington, but all over the country. Shannon Watts. Hi, Shannon. I'm so happy to have you on our podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for having me on. Why don't you remind people who may not know how Moms Demand Action began, why it began, and where it began. I was watching the news uh, December 14th, 2012, and saw this just tragic news that there had been a school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. And I remember I was folding laundry at the time and just thought, dear God, don't let this be as bad as it seems. And you know, obviously, it was it was a million times worse than anyone could ever fathom. Ever fathom, and as a mom of five, that is how this issue impacted me. You know, when twenty six year olds and six educators can be shot and killed in the sanctity of an elementary school, um, I just felt that it was finally time for me to get off the sidelines, specifically as a mom. And so I started a Facebook page, and I had seventy five friends at the time, 75 Facebook friends. I was no social media phenom. But what happened through the power of social media was that suddenly I was inundated by strangers across the country who wanted to 
start a chapter. I hadn't even realized I had started an organization, and suddenly people wanted to start chapters of Moms Demand Action where they lived. And we were off and running, and here we are five years later. Um, We're one of the largest grassroots movements in the country. We have a chapter in every state. Uh, We have millions of supporters. And since Parkland, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of active volunteers. What was the action you were demanding at the outset? You know, I I didn't know much about organizing. Um, I was not politically active. And I really thought, okay, we needed to have a big march, not realizing that there had been this Million Mom March after Columbine in 2000. And very quickly, a lot of wonderful policy experts and members of Congress and even state lawmakers came to me and said, you know, what we really need is for women in particular to organize around this issue, to become a grassroots army that can kill bad bills and support good bills and change corporate policy. Um, and, and that's exactly what we've done. Let's talk about that because I think— you know, sometimes these grassroots movements take root and uh, take hold, and yet people don't hear about everything that's been accomplished. And by the way, I think this is such a great example of the power of social media for, for good. You were able to create something just through your virtual relationships with all these like-minded people. So, Shannon, five years later, tell us about some of the things that you've been able to do. So we had a call from the White House just a few weeks after we started, and they asked us to support what was called the Manchin-Toomey Bill. And that is a bill that would have closed the private sale loophole at a federal level in this country. And so that's what we focused on the first few months. Um, We all know that in April of 2013, that bill failed by just a handful of votes in the Senate. And I really thought, okay, well, we've we've done everything we could here. You know, maybe it's time to pack up our, our things and go home. Can you explain what the private sale loophole actually is? Absolutely. So... In this country, if you buy a gun from a licensed dealer, for example, at Walmart or any dealer who has a license to sell guns, you do have to have a background check. You do not have to have a background check if it is a private sale. And those are typically at gun shows or online or even in some states' garage sales. Um, And millions of guns are sold every year that way. And that is how dangerous people get a hold of guns very easily, domestic abusers and felons. I read a a statistic just yesterday, Shannon, that 42% of U.S. gun owners acquired their most recent firearm without a background check. So this is happening all the time. Mm Well, when the when the Brady Bill was passed in the 90s, no one ever imagined there would be this online market for guns. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, so many people, and there's absolutely no regulation at all. Right. So we failed just by a handful of votes in the Senate um, in April of 2013. And, and again, you know, I didn't know what would happen to Moms Demand Action at that point. What I didn't realize is that when you're working with so many type A women, there's really no going backward. <laughs> there's only going forward. <laughs> Hallelujah. Exactly. So, you know, really our volunteers just intuitively pivoted to state houses and boardrooms where we immediately began supporting governors who would pass this kind of legislation in the wake of Sandy Hook. We did it in Delaware and Maryland and and other states. Actually, we've closed that private sale loophole in eight states in Sandy Hook, bringing the total of states that have done that to 19. And 
we also have to kill bad bills in states. Uh, we have about a 93% track record of killing NRA-supported bad bills like guns in schools or guns on college campuses, permitless carry. And we have to show up to do that in state houses year after year. And we also pivoted to corporations. And we have made significant changes in corporate policy since we started, everything from Starbucks to Chipotle to Target. And then since Parkland, nearly 20 companies have changed their gun policy. Well, talk about those companies, or you don't have to talk about all 20, but a few of them and why it was so significant. You know, when lawmakers don't act to protect their constituents, it really is on companies to protect their customers. And it's also a really important lever that women can pull. We make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. And so what, what we initially started doing was asking companies to prohibit something called open carry, which is legal in 45 states. Um, it used to be that you could bring your AR-15 into Starbucks when you got a latte in those states. You can't anymore because of our work. But what we saw after Parkland that was so interesting was that companies were stopping their discount programs uh, with the NRA. And also, we have seen companies raise the age at which you can buy a long gun. So many states allow you to buy a semi-automatic rifle when you're 18 years old. Even though you can't buy a handgun until you're 21, you can't drink, can't even rent a car, but you can buy an AR-15. And we've seen several companies, L.L. Bean, Dix, Orvis Company, and others, change that age to 21. And again, acting when lawmakers won't. So in Florida, in the wake of Parkland, uh, legislation was passed and signed that did raise the age with some loopholes to 21 for buying guns. But not for semi-automatic weapons, right? No, or yeah, were, the, were those included? All, all well, can you guns. explain to us, Shannon, yeah. what happened in Florida and whether you supported that legislation? We do. Overwhelmingly, that was really positive legislation. So it puts in place a red flag law. These laws are very important. We actually passed one in California after the shooting at UCSB, and it allows families and police to petition a judge to get a temporary restraining order to remove the the firearms of someone who seems to be a danger to themselves or others. It also raises the age that someone can buy a long gun from 18 to 21. And a long gun is anything from a hunting rifle to a semi-automatic rifle. And it puts in place just some safety mechanisms that we know are proven to, to prevent gun violence. It does allow districts to arm administrative staff if they choose to do so. And because we have a grassroots army on the ground, we can now go district by district and, and convince them not to. Why is that so important? Because, you know, I think people do hear this and some people just go, crazy with the idea of teachers being armed. On the other hand, some people think, well, maybe it does make sense to have a stronger security or show of security in somebody who is trained mm -hmm. to be standing guard at some of these schools. So can you help yep. us make sense of that, Shannon? Absolutely. So, you know, first of all, we're not opposed to armed guards at schools who, who do have training and background checks. However, we have seen time and time again, everything from Columbine to the Pulse nightclub to Parkland, that even when there is an armed deputy on site, it doesn't necessarily stop someone who is perfectly willing to give up their lives as they commit mass homicide and often have an arsenal, uh, bulk ammo, even tactical gear, <laughs> you know, which is no match necessarily for a, a deputy. But also, I want to point out that even the most highly trained police have about 18% 
rate of accuracy when shooting a moving target. So the idea wow. that we are going to arm these volunteer teachers and turn them into sharpshooters is absurd. You know, the, the answer is not arming teachers. It's disarming dangerous people. Well, you know, that's the NRA chestnut. Yep. The best way to deal with a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And I think the research and the evidence really disproves that time and time again. It does. And also, look, th this shooter in Parkland was essentially a good guy in the NRA's mind until he shot and killed 17 people. This was an 18-year-old who had legally purchased an arsenal bulk ammo, tactical gear. He had never been convicted of a crime. He had never been adjudicated mentally ill. That is the definition of an NRA good guy. You know, Shannon, a lot of people knew this perpetrator in Parkland seemed to be bad news, right? Yep. People had seen him practicing with guns in his backyard. I don't know all the details, but had observed disturbing behavior on Instagram and all sorts of places that would have raised a red flag. And had reported him to the FBI. Right, exactly. So I guess the question is, with these red flag laws, how do you enforce them? And how do you ensure that people, if they see something, they say something? It's really important, that, that last point you made about when you see something, say something. I mean, we have this law, for example, in California now because— when the UCSB shooting happened, uh, the parents had gone to the police many times and said, look, our son is armed and dangerous. And they said, there's nothing we can do. He's never been convicted of a crime. He's never been adjudicated mentally ill. We cannot remove his weapons. And so now our job in California is to educate people about this law and to let them know they can take advantage of it, right? That police and families can petition a judge and get a temporary restraining order to move remove someone's guns if they seem to be a danger to themselves or others. And if Florida had had that law, it would have made it a lot easier to intervene and to really understand what this teenager was planning. But I guess the NRA goes nuts over that. The NRA opposes it. That, that people who are law-abiding citizens, suddenly they will figuratively be in the crosshairs of the authorities and their guns will be taken away. Is that right? The NRA, look, I've been doing this for five years. The NRA opposes every single law that is proven by data to slow gun violence. And it isn't necessarily because they really disagree with the law. It's because they believe any law, no matter how small, no matter how incremental, is a slippery slope to confiscation, or at least that's what they tell their members. Well, let's talk about the power of the NRA and where it actually comes from, because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings that, you know, millions of law-abiding members of the NRA chip in small dollars, <laughs> and that's where they get their political punch. But really, the story is different from that. That's right. The NRA could have zero members and still be a political powerhouse because they receive a majority of the $350 million annual budget they have from gun manufacturers. Um, this idea that they have 5 million members has been proven to be a, a myth by reporters. So many of those people are dead or they just joined for the discounts. Um, I can assure you that when we show up at state houses, it's typically dozens or hundreds of Moms to Be in Action volunteers versus one NRA lobbyist, for example, in Florida. Um, this, this is not about the NRA being powerful because they have millions of motivated members. It's because they have millions of dollars from gun manufacturers. One thing we should point out is 74% of NRA members 
actually believe in sensible gun laws and believe that they should change. Is that right, Shannon? That's right. So a Republican pollster found that 74% of all NRA members actually support common sense gun laws like closing the background check loophole. And also it's important to keep in mind that only about one out of every nine or 10 gun owners actually even belongs to the NRA. And, And when you poll gun owners more generally, about 85% of them support stronger gun laws. So this is really about a radicalized NRA leadership that is not in any way in tune, not only with America, but even its own members. In fact, when we did that film, Under the Gun, and you were featured in it, Shannon, so many people who are gun owners said, thank you so much for doing this movie because you are expressing the views of most gun owners in this country that have been silenced or who really don't have a voice in this entire debate. But tell us more about the unholy alliance between gun manufacturers and the NRA and how that works and why that's so important in understanding how the NRA operates. So the NRA is basically just a lobbying organization that solely exists at this point to protect the profits of gun manufacturers you know, back in the 70s, it used to be a hunting and sportsman's organization focused on gun safety and training. That all went out the window about two or three decades ago when what happened was gun manufacturers started selling more guns to fewer people. And that's an aging out demographic, typically a white man over the age of 50 or 60. And so when they realized that they needed to open up the market for gun sales is when all of their sort of moderate beliefs, and in fact, in 1999, Wayne LaPierre said he he didn't support guns in schools and, and he supported a background check on every gun sale. Those moderate beliefs have gone out the window. They became much more radicalized because in order to inculcate the next generation of gun buyers, they have to force guns into K-12 through schools, they have to put guns on college campuses, they have to sell guns to women. And so what we've seen is that because they no longer have a boogeyman in the White House to say, this person is going to take your guns away, they have to make us afraid of one another. And we're seeing that more and more. If you have the misfortune of watching NRA TV, you will see that their whole purpose is to foment this culture war. And and isn't it also giving sort of fancier, souped-up guns with more bells and whistles to get people who currently already own guns to buy more guns? Well, the NRA has convinced this subset of people it sells guns to that they need an arsenal. They need, you know, 10 AR-15s. They need six Glocks. And, and that's actually the biggest problem for the organization is that they need to open up that market of gun sales. In fact, since Donald Trump was elected president, gun sales have gone down 10% or over $100 million. And that's why, for example, we see the NRA trying to deregulate silencers because they can't convince someone to buy another gun necessarily, but they can convince them to buy accessories. So let's talk about whether anything's actually going to change at the federal level in the wake of the Parkland shooting. Is there hope for legislation that could make a meaningful difference? Uh, (laughs) You know, look, I, I understand that everybody would like this cathartic moment in Congress. I would, too. But the wins that we're looking for may come in the state houses. They may come in corporate boardrooms until we get a Congress and a president in place who will do the right thing. Um, you know, the president came out after saying one thing about what he promised at a federal level. He's now backtracking and just sort of putting forth a, a plan that was clearly written by the NRA. And 
these incremental changes that he's talking about um, really do nothing to solve our gun violence problem. Uh, that is why our organization is so incredibly focused on the midterm elections. If we really want to send a strong signal to, to our members of Congress and to our state houses, we have to use our votes in the November elections, and we have to be educated about where our candidates and lawmakers stand on this issue, and we have to vote accordingly. We've seen this movie before, a terrible <laughs> school shooting, you know, the nation grieving, and then forgetting. And everyone seems to think, Shannon, for whatever reason, actually, I'd like to ask you if you think this, why? Parkland is different. These kids are different. That's not saying anything about the beautiful lives that were lost in tragedies like this in this country. But for some reason, in this time with these voices— something's going to change. Do you agree with that? I do. And and I think it already has changed. I mean, we have nearly 200,000 new volunteers and millions of new members who have joined us just since Parkland. We actually started something called Students Demand Action, and nearly 20,000 people have joined that. We are seeing a change like we've never seen before. And I, I think that's for a, a few reasons. One is that we saw not only the survivors, but also the entire community of Parkland come together after the shooting with one clear call to action within hours. And that call to action was that we needed stronger gun laws. And look, that may be because of all the work that we've been doing for five years to educate people about this issue. It may be because people are so tired of mass shootings in this country. I mean, the largest mass shooting in the history of our country in in Las Vegas happened on President Trump's watch. Um, But I also think that we are starting to see this generation lockdown become adults. So for the last 18 years or so, we've been telling these kids, look, Active shooter drills are no different than fire drills or earthquake drills. These are acts of nature, essentially. And they're becoming adults, like my 17-year-old son, and they're realizing they've been sold a bill of goods. These are acts of cowardice. This is the complete inaction of our lawmakers to protect them. And I think they're really angry. And the the argument or the trope used by the NRA and a lot of Republicans in Washington is this is really a mental health issue. This isn't a gun issue. What's Mm -hmm. your reaction to that? There are a few things to say about that. And that is definitely a straw man that you see Republicans break out every time there's a a mass shooting or horrific shooting tragedy in this country. It's so infuriating, isn't it? It it is. And and here's why. First of all, it stigmatizes mental illness. You know, we're hearing NRA pundits and, and Donald Trump say things like they were sickos. Look, people who are mentally ill are much more likely to be a victim of violent crime than they are to be the perpetrator. But also, if the issue of the mentally ill having guns was so important to this president uh, and this Congress, they wouldn't have made the very first action they took to roll back an Obama rule that prevented uh, Social Security recipients um, who were too mentally ill to handle their benefits from buying guns. That was the first thing Donald Trump did was to roll back that rule. So none of it rings true. You know, we've seen them point fingers at everything from mental illness to video games to even single parents since Parkland. All of that is to distract us from what is the truth, and it's easy access to guns. Well, and the reality is, in other countries, there's mental illness, there are violent video games, and there are single parents. And no (laughs) other country has the mass shooting problem that we have in this country. That is exactly right. We have the same rates of mental illness as other high-income countries. We watch the same movies. We play the same video games. What's different is that we have easy access to guns. We have 300 million guns and very few gun laws. 
Let's talk about sort of what really works, Shannon, though. You know, one step is obviously closing the gun show loophole and private sellers and online with background checks. But that is just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Because even with among licensed gun dealers, the records are not really updated or up to speed. There isn't evidence when somebody with a record of domestic violence and mental health issues Are the proper red flags raised? I mean, what are some of the other areas that need attention from Mm -hmm. people who want to do something about this? Katie, one thing I always recommend to people is that they watch Under the Gun because I think you all did an amazing job of digging into the complexities of this issue and, and what needs to be fixed. But we do know that closing the background check loophole would save a lot of lives. If you look at the 19 states that have done that, you see gun violence cut almost in half across the board. So that is the first thing that we need to do. But a lot of people don't realize that also um, there are glaring loopholes, for example, in domestic violence laws. Uh, They don't include stalkers or dating partners as prohibited purchasers. So we have to go into each state and change those laws to give them teeth. We've done it now in 25 states, red and blue across the country. Um, we also, as you mentioned, go into states and pass laws that bolster the NICS system, the, the system that we put information records into to show who is a prohibited buyer and why. And, you know, another really interesting thing that, that people don't realize is that if you do go to a licensed dealer and try to buy a gun and you're flagged as a prohibited purchaser, that isn't necessarily reported to the police. And that's a huge red flag. So we work to change those laws as well. But don't forget that all while we're doing these things, the NRA is working really hard to pass laws that endanger us. So in 13 states, for example, the NRA has passed permitless carry laws, which means you don't have to have a background check or training or even a permit to carry a gun, to conceal carry a gun in that state. So while we're trying to pass these good laws, we also have to stop these bad laws. And there's a recent law about intrastate. If you have a concealed carry permit mm-hmm. in one state, you can use it when you go to another yep. state that I know Cyrus Vance is fighting against. Yep. What happened with that? So this bill is actually winding its way through Congress still. And after every mass shooting, including Parkland, you hear the NRA and the president suggest that somehow something called concealed carry reciprocity would would help our gun violence situation. The NRA has been trying to pass concealed carry reciprocity for nearly 20 years. They have failed every time. Because what does it, it mean exactly? Yep. Explain it to our listener, Shannon. So basically what would happen is the weakest law of the land to get a gun permit would become the law of the land everywhere. So, for example, to get a gun permit in Alabama, you do not have to be 18. You can have a, a background of, of convicted violence. You can have DUIs. You don't have to have live fire training. It's one of the weakest permit requirements in the country. Under concealed carry reciprocity, you could then take that permit and your gun into any state of the country, no matter how strong their gun laws are. So it's really a, a behind-the-scenes way to upend state laws. Can you just, before we go, because we're going to have to wrap, unfortunately, Shannon, I could talk to you about this all day. Urban violence is such a problem. So many black kids are killed by gun violence on the streets of cities across the country every day. And there is this feeling that when white children or white victims Mm -hmm. are in the news, it gets so much more attention than this daily drip, drip, drip of wrath of of shootings that you see on the streets of these cities. What can be done about urban violence and all the kids of color that are killed 
regularly in Mm -hmm. cities like Chicago. Look, this is a very big and complicated issue, and there are a lot of different ways that we can address gun violence. You know, our organization is focused mainly on changing gun laws. And when we look at laws like closing the background check loophole, we know that that significantly reduces gun trafficking, for example. And when you talk about Chicago, the majority of the crime guns that are in Chicago actually come from Indiana, which is just 20 minutes away from Chicago. You can go across the border, fill up your truck with semi-automatic rifles and handguns with no background check, drive back 20 minutes and sell them. Um, And so we do know— And the bad Apple gun dealers, by the way, sell dozens of guns to somebody who then sells them on the streets of Chicago, and there's nothing prohibiting them from doing so. There's actually a bill that just passed the Illinois legislature. We're hoping the governor will sign it into law. Um, We're putting pressure on him to do so. And it would actually address that issue. It would require those gun dealers themselves to have background checks. Well, obviously, you're making some strides, and you're going to be part of this march on the 24th? That's right. I will be in Washington, D.C., supporting the students and just hoping that this momentum will take us into the midterms. Well, Shannon Watts, thank you so much for talking with us, as always, Shannon. And I'd like to personally say congratulations to your army of moms (laughs) and allies who are out there fighting the good fight, donating their time and energy and dollars to— really ushering in some kind of change in this country. Thank you so much. Thank you, as always, to our lovely producer, who we really do like so much. (laughs) Yeah, we don't just say it. We actually mean it. No, we do mean it. And Gianna, I really enjoy working with you and appreciate everything you do. Gianna Palmer is our producer. I also really like our audio engineer, who's a super nice guy, Jared O'Connell, and our assistant producer, Nora Ritchie. Nora, I like you too. I'm not going to leave you out. (laughs) Special thanks this week to Pony Sound Studios in Austin, Texas, where we're now sitting. I feel like we should record a country western song (laughs) in this room, Katie. There's a wagon wheel on the wall. It's uh, very, very interesting and different from our New York studio. Thanks to Luce Fleming in New York and KGNU Community Radio in Boulder, Colorado. They all helped us to get this show recorded on the road. It takes a village, as Katie would say. Thanks to everybody. Also to Beth DeMoz, my assistant, Emily Bina over at Katie Couric Media, and Allison Bresnick, who gets the word out so well about our podcast on social media. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. You can find me on social media. I am an animal on Insta stories. You should check those out. You see a whole different side of me that maybe you don't want to see. But anyway, check me out at Katie Couric. And Brian, of course, is on Twitter at Goldsmith B. And here's one more reminder to please call in with your thoughts and feedback. We really do appreciate them. That number- You got all sexy there in your voice for a second. What was that about? Thoughts and feedback. That may just be you. I- I (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or maybe I need to blow my nose. <laughs> that number again is 929-224-4637. <laughs> or you can email us at comments at currickpodcast.com. And we really do love hearing from you. It actually makes me feel closer to all of you and makes me feel like you're enjoying the podcast, which motivates and inspires us to keep doing it. So thank you. We're off next week, but after that, we won't have another break until the very end of May. So don't panic, dear listeners. We'll be back very soon. (laughs) 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with with Zumo Play.